John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 557.PR0513, certificate number 43738. The Guru Letters. Do you remember a time when... U.S. political scandals, and particularly like federal government presidential scandals, were what powered the news. <laughs> we were You're all... not talking about Teapot Dome. You're talking about like I'm talking gaffes. About the, I'm talking about the whiskey ring. <laughs> oh, yeah. The XYZ affair. Yes. No, it's true. These are as old as the Republic. But I think there's something special about Watergate having brought down a presidential administration where for a, there was a 20-year hangover after that where... The media really saw that as their destiny. Yeah. To to give names to different kinds of presidential scandals. And there were some pretty good ones post Watergate. Sure, the Iran Contra scandal. Iran Contra is an amazing scandal. It's great. Because wait, we were selling arms to Iran to fund a, a Counter revolution somewhere else? No, the other Central way around. America. We were selling drugs, drugs to buy guns to send, but we were exchanging hostages for the. Let's see, you, drugs. you give the drugs to the Contras, but where? No, wait. You take you, the Golden Anne and you give it to Stan. You put the fox in the boat and send it to the Contras first. They send it back with the goat. Right. They then put, you put the lime in the coconut. Then you put the fox and the goat in a boat to Iran. Mm hmm. Anyway, it was a really good scandal, and uh, so good we remember it so well, so clearly. But it made people, it was a juicy. It was juicy. It made people big stars. Fawn Hall, Do you and, just Fawn Hall, by virtue of being a secretary who shredded stuff to a creepy military guy, and having uh, you know kind of sexy '80s Marky Post hair. She did suddenly became. A, a late night show guest. Oliver North was just a lieutenant colonel. Why did anybody care about him? <laughs> How did he even have a secretary? Do lieutenant colonels really have secretaries? They shouldn't. Admiral John Poindexter. I'm remembering the whole thing now. Robert McFarland. It's all coming back to me. Casper Weinberg. I mean, Bush. All. Uh, I think Bush later pardoned all the. Yeah, sure he did. All the convictions. But there were so many scandals like that. And, 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 it, and Clinton era, we still got the same. The same kind of. 
hangover. There was white water because maybe there was a real estate transaction. Uh, but that was all fake. It wasn't above board. But then we got the real scandal, right. which is he was he was having scandal. an affair with an intern. The best kind sex scandal. Iran Contra was not sexy. Except for Fawn Hall. Fawn Hall. And even Fawn Hall, again, sexy in a very limited Marky Post kind of way. Yeah, but I think Oliver North was sort of handsome. He, he was rakish, but he was also defiant. And his defiance was kind of The sexy. uniform helped. Like yes. if somebody had just got up there in a suit from the Federal Trade Commission and said, I don't admit your authority. I'll send cocaine to whatever gorillas I want. We would have been like, this guy's a dingbat. But he had a uniform, so people in middle America were just weeping at this patriot. He had that 1980s uh, Letterman gap in his front teeth, too. (laughs) He had the floppy hair, kind of a pig nose, Kevin Bacon pig nose. Yeah, he looked like Alfred E. Newman, frankly, when you really think about it. Uh, This is all gone now. Presidential scandal culture. <laughs> I wish that in, we that we had something so dramatic as a as a arms for drugs for hostages scandal. I mean, for one thing, we had eight years of relatively squeaky clean Obama administration, right? Whereby you know he's what just, was his scandal? Did he have a scandal? Yeah, there was. Um, <coughs> who he wore that tan suit, right? I feel like he had a beer with uh, that uh, that Harvard professor whose house got. Burgled because he was black. Oh, that's right. Oh, wait, no. The the Obama scandal was that he was endorsed by black separatist yes, ministers. Yes, d- during his campaign. Uh, and that kind of washed right off. But in office, hardly anything. There was, um, and even, it might be older than that, because the Bush era was weirdly scandal-free, considering how many business cronies. I mean, what do we even remember? Dick Cheney shot his friend in the face. But is it a scandal? Yeah. Or is he just not very good at hunting ducks? Yeah, or maybe too good at hunting ducks. <laughs> there were the there were like five million emails that got erased, but nobody remembers that because there was subsequent... Basically, the Democrats are not great at pressing scandals. I th- yeah, and I think also the Bush... Well, the primary Bush scandal was that the Supreme Court intervened in his election. Yeah, but once also, he's once he's president. <laughs> but also there were tons of uh, of scandals that were all just um, just in the the course of doing political business, like torture and right. All uh, these scandals were all the scandals were U.S. foreign policy like <laughs> headline news. Abu Ghraib. Uh, the fact that they ignored all the CIA evidence of uh, imminent terrorist attack. Million civilian deaths in Iran and Afghanistan. Yeah, but that's not scandal. It can't be scandal because there's no uh, perky marky post. Well, and also the press did a terrible job of even following up on political problems during that era. Let alone inventing. Like panty gates and whatnot. And then Obama was so dull and straight-laced that nothing really stuck. They tried to make a big deal out of, uh, remember when Eric Holder was found in contempt of Congress because they were, somebody in Arizona, some ATF guys in Arizona were planting guns uh, on the Mexican drug lords, and then they actually got used in crimes. Right. See, you don't even remember this. This yeah. was this was the biggest thing that Vaguely. conservative talk radio was making people mad about in the... Uh, what the around 2010? Oh well, and nobody remembers a thing. Benghazi. Yes, Benghazi was a was a, a trumped up, but it was scandal. used against Hillary. Yeah, right. not against Obama. Although that much. At, I think at the time it was it was, I mean, like you say, Obama was kind of Teflon to that type of thing. I mean, he, oh, do you remember when he fist bumped his wife? I don't think he. Oh, right, right. That, that was some yes, kind was. of, and then they made a. F- a New Yorker cover where he's like dressed as a mufti. He's, you know, they're all wearing Sharia garb. Yeah. 
but it's making fun of the overreaction to the fist bump. Yeah, the tiniest little things got Limbaugh going for months because... Oh, the mosque at Ground Zero, on. Ground Zero Mosque. Oh man, I'm having flashbacks I now know, right? to all these to all these <laughs> fake news stories. The mosque at Ground Zero. Well, and the fact that the Sandy Hook massacre was a false flag and none of that really happened. Right. So but consp- that's all just kooky the, stuff. The conspiracy theories kind of muddy the water. Right. But when when it gets broad spread enough, and somebody's reading that stuff into the congressional record, as is starting to happen, and then of course in the Trump era, his discovery was that if there's always 60 scandals that's the same as having zero scandals right because it's, no it's one been can follow any of them the 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 amount of uh, the amount of ink that was spilled over the fact that a democratic presidential candidate once yelled weirdly while listing a bunch of states <laughs> right <laughs> that ended howard dean's campaign it was over it was over and he's still i mean he wakes up in a cold sweat i'm sure every other night Thinking I should about have, I, I could have yelled more if he had just yelled more or less or something. Right. And our current <laughs> the, the wrong number of times to yell is one. Any other number like zero or ten thousand is fine. It's electable. Our current president, like how many how many scandals would you have to go through? How many just like on tape confessions would you have to dig down? Before you got to the level of like a weird tick, people, a weird vocal tick. People of this era will not understand how. Uh, just 20 years ago, a presidential gaffe would be called a gaffe and just dissected on the news by talking heads for a week because uh, because the president said something ill-considered. Well, Dukakis riding around in the tank with the hat that a, didn't fit. What a gaffe. <laughs> it, you know, it ruined his chances to be president a, of the USA. A president, a guy looking like a doofus once was disqualifying <laughs> then. But again... If you just look like a doofus 10,000 times, right. it's the same as not looking like a doofus. Crazy. Anyway, so I love and am nostalgic for all these. Just when you said Ground Zero Mosque, I got like a warm feeling just remembering uh, scandals of a simpler time. I know. It when, hadn't when occurred we, to me to be simp- uh, to be like sentimental about it. Because we could still be scandalized. Yeah. Like now we're, um, you know, when, when you've seen the worst unfold, you just become very jaded. Right. There's no, there is no irony anymore because everything, because what's your ironic take on injecting bleach? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there can't be one. It really shows the naivete we had, that it mattered. Yeah. And then the the news media thought that by dissecting the gaffe, that they were um, performing a service and, and that eventually America would decide on the merits. I think we always knew that it didn't matter, and somehow we never... No, nobody took advantage of it. We've, we've done a terrible job. I mean, and I, I hate to... I hate to... This is a weird compliment to pay, but unmasking that fairly disingenuous aspect of the military... Of the, I'm sorry, of the media, where Dukakis was... You almost disrespected the troops for a second. I, I don't want to disrespect the troops, but the fact that Howard Dean was eliminated from contention as a democratic a viable candidate because he said the he word went, yeah, he said the word illinois in a weird way <laughs> um what is what is ridiculous and was ridiculous and we weren't somehow culturally prepared to push back against that idea enough and now that we have a president that just uh, that pure pure id and exceeds the, all bounds all the time hopefully when we do return to normal if such a thing is possible, it will never again be possible to indict someone for something that dumb. I just hope we 
we do bring back indicting people for bad things. I wonder if that's what comes back in some like desperate, uh, even Biden, if that's what it takes, grasp at normalcy. You know, if if what we'll learn is that you know all the worst people were fine with the worst behavior, but once this you know once the cooler minds have prevailed and are back in charge, we're we're going to go back to uh, well, we don't do that, right? Yeah, like we, you know, we're going to have all the all the old scruples as well. well. I mean, speaking to futurelings who know what happens in the next several months, uh, this is all going to sound very um, very retro, but like if Biden picks Kamala Harris and then dies two years into his term. By the way, we're, sp- we're speaking to a, uh, at the earliest July listeners who actually know. Right. So who knows who Biden's vice presidential pick is from our time in your distant or, or, or recent past rather. But, uh, you know, I think Elizabeth Warren, if she were the vice president would reestablish norms of behavior. I just hope that the culture could, can rejoin her there. On whatever lily pad she stands on where maybe, uh, rape is bad. Maybe the media has gone anyway. The thing is, I always felt that the media abdicated its responsibility somewhere in the in the 80s when... Um, Donna Cable News, you think? Like 24-hour news cycle? That's often a villain. I always felt that the, uh, that the demonization of liberalism, where it became... It was an unexamined fact that liberals were uh, permissive and um, like unscrupulous. Right. It wasn't the opposite of conservative. It was actually a slur. It was a slur. Yeah. And the fact that the that not only that the liberals took that lying down, but that the media never interrogated it and just sort of reprinted the idea that being a liberal was intrinsically bad, uh, verging on disgusting. And what we, what you got was that generation of neo-liberal Democrats who tried to disavow just liberalism. Just because Dukakis lost so many states. Yeah, that all it took got- was then to call someone a liberal and, it, you, and you had tarred and feathered them. That era... Where the, the, and I felt like the media was complicit in it. The repercussions have been pretty deep, too, where today, like, kind of mainstream ideals of New Deal progressivism that would not have raised eyebrows in the Democratic Party in 1955 or 1975, no matter what the idea is, today is met as socialism. Right. Some kind of crazy outside... What, you want everyone to have health care? Harumph, harumph, harumph. And I think that's, I think that is, that is a born out of that conservative ascendancy and then their desire to cast liberalism not just as a political opponent as an oppositional view but as some kind of immoral uh uh libertine philosophy i have a favorite political scandal that it's a new favorite of mine because teapot dome it's absolutely not teapot dome (laughs) That's mine. That's my favorite scandal. I have only the vaguest idea. I feel like I know more about Ground Zero Mask than I do about Teapot Dome, which has something to do with, uh, what, oil deposits in Wyoming, maybe? Am I thinking of a different scandal? I know there's a dome and maybe a teapot. Uh, that's uh, wonderful. It's it, it's a it's a, it's a a bribery. Uh, it's uh, Harding era. Harding, that's what it was, yeah. Um, 
We'll, but, we'll we'll do a, we'll do an omnibus on Teapot Dome. Not that anybody wants to learn about pr- it. But. People are pretty excited now. Please, if you have the full <laughs> omnibus, because you're in the year three thousand, stop this immediately and go to the Teapot Dome entry, which I'm sure know, is good. I don't know why I I fixated on it. I mean, I've, thirty years ago that became my favorite scandal. This, it's not that great. It's not a great scandal. It's like your cellar door. Yeah. Like the most beautiful <laughs> phrase in the English language is Teapot Dome. Anyway, your favorite scandal is uh, was discovered by me not long ago when we added the right of spring riots mm. to the omnibus. Mm-hmm. I started reading about a fella. That's that's kind of my liberals. Liberalism is bad, so I say fella. Fella. I'm a good American who says fella. Y'all. A fella named Nicholas Rarick. He uh, made a cameo appearance in the Rite of Spring entry as the Russian artist enlisted to design the scenery, the kind of appropriately Slavonic oh, yeah. scenery and costumes of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Uh, Nicholas Rarick was a St. Petersburg-born painter who, uh, for most of his life, had almost nothing to do with U.S. presidential scandals, and then at the end really did in a surprising way that I think will... Uh, Surprise and delight. That will amaze and, and, and uh, <laughs> baffle you. Uh, he, uh, Rarick was interested in kind of the heritage of Russianness and medieval Russianness in particular. Mm-hmm. Fascinated by Russia's... Life. And this is something comic, common to our Slavic brethren. Yeah, they, they believe been... in a kind of an ideal, a muscular ideal of a Russian past that we don't know much about in this hemisphere. Well, and I don't think, I think part of the reason is they don't know it's much about. Because it's largely made up, I think. Yeah, and, and uh, there's there's always been a Russian identity crisis that I think there's been quite a bit of study about it, but, you know, they think of themselves alternately as descendants of the Greeks, true, you know, true uh like torchbearers of Greek ideals. But then also maybe they're kind of rugged Central Asian right. pioneers. The ancient Rus of, of uh, Ukraine or the, the, the descendants of a lot, maybe stuff the with Mongols. Wol- stuff with wolves, w- wolf wolves. adjacent. Yeah, the, the Vikings came down, the Volga. And it, it does look a lot of... So I've looked at a lot of Rarick's art. He was a Russian symbolist of the um, late 19th, early 20th centuries. Uh, part of... The World of Art, which was a, a magazine uh, started by Sergei Diaghilev, the great ballet impresario. Russian symbolism is largely a, a poetic movement, a lot, of, a lot of poets and some musicians. He was the great painter. And looking at his early work, um, it does celebrate history so much so that it reminds me, like in American culture, it almost looks like the, the boys' own book illustrations of like an N.C. Wyeth type, right. where you've got kind of these colorful Slavic looking ships with maybe dragons on the prows plying the Volga. Um, a lot of maybe like a, when there's religious subjects, the angels and the clerics and whatnot are often uh, drawn in the vernacular of I- Russian icon painting, uh-huh. kind of the flat gold leaf look. Is it arts and craftsy era? It kind of is because of that icon painting influence. A lot of, there's kind of a very limited, subtle palettes, which in a way looks very modern. And maybe it's why it reminds me of magazine illustration, because it's very, uh, it's kind of strikingly graphic, uh, not in the sense of explicit, but just in the sense of designy right. for work of that period. Yeah, I mean, it, so is it a, is it decorative art? Yes. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, it's a strong design sense, strong sense of geometry is the impression I get, but also just the subject matter is 
you know, bearded clerics and sailors and, and boatmen and herdsmen doing Russian things in a kind of nondescript past. Oh, Russian things. They're doing Russian things. They do look like, I'm, see, I'm, I'm looking at them now. They do look like sort of, uh, uh, wow, how would you describe it? I have a friend in Anchorage who does Alaska artwork. Yeah. And uh, a lot of it is about wolves and the Northern Lights and skiing. It's not that different from like Remington or these painters of the American West with with big skies and a, a um, lot of sh- like dramatic shadowing on rugged mountains. Yes, purple, purple light as the sun dips below the mesa or whatever. But but there is a kind of uh, like what seems almost Native American, um, and by that I mean a kind of twentieth century appropriation of native american art turned into fine art in in um taos i can see that like a primitivism yeah and i think that's probably in line with the heritage of you know who who were our who were our mythic ancestors right wow interesting i don't want any of this art oh i don't i don't dislike it it's like it's like a really lushly painted prince valiant panel over your couch Maybe that's exactly what you hate about it. But that's that You're is, not uh, that selling is me on it. 100% my aesthetic, actually. Um, Rarick was still living in Russia at the time of the Russian Revolution. I think I think he had actually emigrated to Lake Ladoga in Finland for maybe health reasons. His health wasn't good. And as a result... When, and everyone says Finland is, is uh, that's where, where you, you go. go. That's where you go. <laughs> oh, they probably had baths, mineral baths. And the, the clear mountain air or something. I don't know what they had. Hmm. In any case, when the Bolsheviks took over, he stayed there. And he was skeptical, not because he was anti-communist, but he was skeptical of the Russian Revolution because he didn't think they were good for the arts. Although you'd think somebody like this producing these beautiful heritage murals would be exactly who Lenin would want. Yeah, they're not far from socialist realism. I agree. And I think he actually was considered for different commissions or positions. Uh, But in the end, he decided to stay out of Russia, and he ended up never actually going back. Oh, that's Uh, a pity. After 1918, he bounced around between, uh, you know, first Finland, and then eventually London, and then eventually, as we shall see, the United States, and points even further removed. Further removed than the United States? The hell you say. If you can imagine... (laughs) We're in the middle of the map, as long as the map is not produced in Europe. Uh, his wife, Helena, at the time became very interested in Eastern religions. Uh-oh, this was uh, boy. This was very faddish, especially when he got to London. When your wife becomes interested in Eastern religions, that spells the end. So no matter what his issues were, he probably wanted just to go to Finland for the waters, and she'd be like, honey, have you tried yoga? Yeah, that's right. She was really into uh, Buddhism, which was not uncommon at the time, and got him excited in reading the Bhagavad Gita and the poetry of Rabindranath Tagore, and he also started to get interested in Eastern thought. Did you read the Tao Poo? He the Tao Poo had not yet been published, but he loved the Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. Oh, good, good. That's a great. Uh, well, I'll do an omnibus on that. Motorcycles hadn't been invented, so it was like the art of sleigh maintenance. It was the Russian version. But once he got to London, of course, the Theosophists control every element of high society at that time, and so he easily runs in with kind of this Gnostic. People are going to get mad when I say Gnostic. Yeah, I know. Gnostic. What's your, he, he what's your from, thesis? He came from Gdansk <laughs> to study Gnosis. Uh, and so he gets involved in the Theosophical Society, kind of this mystical sect of Christianity. The divine can be approached by ways which we're going to claim are Christian, but really are appropriating a lot of kind of occult and Eastern language. Uh, this happened to me thoughts. in college, too. 
You know, you we, joined the Gnostics for a little bit. We all went through this phase. The, the Theosophist house there on, <laughs> on you, North Capitol did Hill. Did you live in Theosophist house? <laughs> <laughs> we all have to, the rule is we all have to speak Theosophist 100% of the time. It's our second language. <laughs> and because this is the early 20th century and the, the year 2000 is, is starting to loom for the first time. Oh, sure. People start to think in millennia. M- <laughs> wow. <laughs> people can no longer pronounce the word millenarian. People start to have this... A millennialist view. I can't be right. Millennialist. Millennialist view. Right. Of Christianity, where some kind of new dawning is coming. Sure. It didn't happen in 1900, so of course it should have been. Well, 1900 is kind of an iffy year for it to happen. Yeah, agreed. But you know, when the year started with 18, nobody was like, "Oh, holy crap, this is coming." But as soon as 19, well, this is the century when it all changes. Right. What's what's next? And in Rarick's view, what's next is a, a very specific kind of dawning of a new age, a new holy man who might actually be him. Oh, he's not like flying cars and space needles. He is second coming. Yeah, there's there's a, a messianic view. He uh, uh, He goes to India for the first time in 1923 and ends up settling in Darjeeling. And he will spend the next few decades going back and forth between... Uh, India and the West, Asia and the West. Um, at this time, the foreign offices of a lot of Western powers start to worry about him because... He seems like a spy. There is that. He is no longer so anti-Bolshevist as he was. And in fact, um, you know, the communist revolution seems to be a big part of his utopian worldview. Oh, wow. Okay. And and uh, and Trotsky's traipsing around still? And- you got Trotsky traipsing? You got a, tra- a Traips and Trotsky. Leon, not- <laughs> Leon Traipsky, we call them. <laughs> That's not what you want. The Traips and Troubadour. He, uh, he began to believe, he spent time when he was in India with some Himalayan uh, holy men that he called Mahatmas, who uh. began to reveal to him the Great Plan, capital G, capital P. And he was important in that. Pl- he himself, Nicholas Rarick, was important in that plan because he had a particular constellation of moles on his right cheek that the the holy men in the monastery were assured him meant that he was the reincarnation of the fifth Dalai Lama. Oh, really? There are you, some. You holy- probably know all the mole patterns of all the Dalai Lamas. There are some men whose responsibility it is to pick the Dalai Lama, uh, but these Mahatmas don't sound like those men. No, I don't think these guys had any particular portfolio. Aren't they supposed to find that Dalai Lama when the old Dalai Lama? Is no longer the Dalai Lama. They they're not just like looking around at forty year old guys saying like, "Oh, you're the one." I don't want to say that these guys are loose cannons. Okay, these Mahatmas, and and all we have of their account is what uh, Rarick brought back with him right. from India, saying, "Hey, good news! I found uh, the monastery where Jesus lived after his time on Earth," which is one thing he did say. Mm-hmm. So he's he's kind of uniting Gnostic Christianity with. Uh, kind of a utopian ideal of a of a Marxist future, you know, a socialist future, uh, as well as the ideas of Eastern mysticism that he loves, and he begins to evolve this very grand idea of uh, of what the next century will bring, and it will in fact be, you know, the future exists and it's Russian, but it's it's kind of a a Siberian utopia, a new realm that will stretch across. Siberia from Mongolia all the way to the steppes of Central Asia, you know, the, the Tuvan throat singers that we love on Omnibus. These will all be part of a new homeland 
for a, a, a new dawning movement. The king of Shambhala will return to the Himalayas and uh, the earth will be, the capital city of this new civilization will be uh, Zvenigorod, the city of the tolling bells, which he thought he himself would help build and found. So he's got a very Rus- Russo-centric idea of a new utopia that will, inc- and because it stretches all the way to the Himalayas, conveniently, it can incorporate all his uh, Buddhist and Vedantic philosophical ideas. Right, but it's a, a but it's a Siberian, but it's a Russian destiny too. So it's going to have beautifully colored uh, bo- boats and painted woods and and iconography from his painting. Well, the the uh, speaking on behalf of the uh, futurelings that are all. Sent, are, sentient mosquitoes. Are you guys listening from Zvenigorod, <laughs> the city of the tolling bells? Good luck, good job. I'm sure the I'm sure the giant mosquitoes are all nodding their little probisci, going like, ah, yes, yes. These were our these were the salad days. What? Because they were they were biting them. Uh, no, because the only inhabitants of most of Siberia are mosquitoes. I see, and some. So more people, and a few bears. So and more people moving to Wolverines. More people moving to Siberia and attempting to found new epical holy cities would only be good for the mosquitoes. Yeah. The mosquitoes are the ones that are like, thank you. Come. Especially if they're big, burly, strapping Russian types and not not scrawny little mystics. No, but what you want is thin-skinned, soft, blood-filled people. Oh, perfect. Like like, uh, artists and poets. Yeah, that's right. Soft blood bags. This is a movement that will will result in a lot of uh, effete poets pouring into... Central Asia. Really? <laughs> Is that where they went? <laughs> <laughs> in uh, And so Rerick thinks he can make this happen. He becomes a starry-eyed idealist and thinks that his mystical ideas should be on the world stage. Uh, he Wait, goes back... He, too bad there wasn't Twitter. He indulges... He uh, enlists some academics at the University of Paris to promote what he calls, modestly, the Rerick Pact. Mm-hmm. He foresees... A new uh, Red Cross-like international organization, but instead of issues regarding medicine, the arts, our cultural heritage. And he calls it Pax Cultura. Yes. And uh, his logo is not a Red Cross, but it's a red circle surrounded by three... Moles. Yeah, it's it's probably his mole constellation. (laughs) It's three red circles in kind of a triangular shape, like a stack of cannonballs. Um, which he calls the Banner of Peace. Right. And he tries to enlist artists and diplomats from all over the world to come together. This is kind of a post-Russian revolution idea, that all people can come together and set aside our differences for international peace, uh, one world government to be ruled from uh, Zvenigorod, Siberia. So he invented Triforce. <laughs> yes, he invented the Trilateral <laughs> Commission. Um I I only laugh because he sounds exactly like me at age twenty four. Is this what you would have done? I, I I had that same. I had the I had the Triforce. I had the uh, the glo- the Pax uh, Art- Artisana. If you add the letter D to Rerick, it does spell Roderick. Roderick. Hmm. I I don't. I'm not pointing any fingers. Hmm. But if I you also, give if you give Nicholas Rerick the D, <laughs> that's that's what you get. I I also am a, a reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. Which one? Uh, the, which one? I'm the uh, ninth. That's, that's, that's a safe number. I think there's only what, 13 or 14. So, uh, let's see. The, the current Dalai Lama is the, um, 14th. And possibly the last. Right. It's, it's not clear how succession is going to work now right. that China has annexed Tibet. 
Um, so because of his work trying to push international cultural exchange onto the global stage by, by virtue of this Rarick Pact, uh, Nicholas Rarick was actually nominated for the Nobel Prize in 1929, and it happens twice more over his career. He has taken quite seriously. Holy cow. Uh, he, uh, so, so this isn't just one guy. Uh, he's uh, a kook, but he builds a movement. And f- people are following the Rurik movement. Yes. Uh, an admiring millionaire named uh, Horch uh, builds him a building on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, the Riverside and 103rd Street. See, that's, that's what I didn't have. Was you a, need an admiring millionaire. An admiring millionaire. So it's, a, it's at Riverside and what? 103rd. And it's still there. To this day, it's a Nicholas Rarick Museum because the bottom, of, the bottom floors of this apartment building, this, uh, this Horch guy, were, wanted to set aside as a gallery of, uh, of Rarick's work. I'm just. I just want to see if the building looks like uh, something from Ghostbusters. Do you want it to have like onion domes and? Uh, yeah, or just or or that the top is inexplicably made out of uh, want, adamantium. Yeah, or you want occult occult geometries. Yeah, that when the light falls just right on this building, it produces strange resonances in the Earth's organ field mm. and awakes awakes mm. the old ones. <laughs> well, there must have been something like that about the building because. Uh, in the early 30s, once this building by an admiring millionaire gets built, a frequent visitor is none other than Howard Phillips Lovecraft, Hello. Uh, a young New England writer who really falls under the spell of Rarick's unearthly work. Rarick has now started painting a lot more Tibetan and Himalayan scenes with odd light falling across very strange monasteries and landscapes, occult architectures. Uh, you know, the, the mystical element is really overriding the Russian influence in his work, the Slavic in his work. I have to say, Ken, have you looked at this building? It is absolutely 100% the building from Ghostbusters. <laughs> now I'm excited. I'm only seeing interior views. Oh, what, look, it's still got the, uh, the three circles hanging out front. The banner of peace is hanging out front. Oh, yeah, look at this. Whoa, spooky. It is kind of a haunted building. Crazy. I mean, your admiring millionaire here built a heck of a building for this guy. And uh, and Lovecraft notices. Lovecraft really likes kind of the the strange lighting effects, the muted palettes, and the weird Eastern architecture, the otherworldly quality of Rarick's art, and it inspires him to write At the Mountains of Madness, set in a similarly snowy setting, snowy mountainous setting, with similar kinds of uh, mysterious ancient architecture. And in fact, many of the characters in Lovecraft's work refer to Rarick, like they'll see uh, a strange landscape and they'll mentally compare it to the works of Nicholas Rarick. So without Rarick, we probably do not get the weird and often racist short stories of a horror icon, H.P. Lovecraft. But Rarick had an even more important admirer than Lovecraft. FDR Secretary of Agriculture, Henry, Henry Wallace. Do you know anything about Henry Wallace? Only that he was FDR's Secretary of Agriculture. Later vice president, later a third-party presidential candidate in 1948. But uh, 
his qualifications. Wallace beats Truman, the famous uh, headline. <laughs> <laughs> his uh, well, he was one of the two third-party Wallaces to do okay in a 20th century election. Right. The other Wallace, hopefully, infinitely worse than this Wallace. This Wallace, uh, not necessarily uh, for segregation forever, but probably because he be- did not believe in forever. He believed that time was a flat circle. Good man. He is a strange one. At the time FDR made him Secretary of Agriculture, his uh, his CV was really above reproach. He was a leading economist and one of the greatest plant, a brilliant plant geneticist. He had come up with, I think, the first hybrid corn plant to... Uh, you know, to achieve success. Oh, I was excited about him until you said that, and now I'm mad at him. Wait, you liked that he was an economist, but now you hate that he's making hybrid corn? No, I hate that he's an economist, but I double, triple hate that he uh, that he took away our corn diversity. You don't like delicious, sweet, modern corn? I like sweet corn. Let's not let's not mince words corn about my love of corn. So much better than when we were kids. But corn has, uh, you know, it's a it's a mono right. a monocrop. Well, I don't think Wallace ever said let's plow under. All the other six, corn. Six states and just plant one kind of corn. Although maybe he did. People didn't know back then. Um, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. FDR loved Wallace. He liked that he knew his field, that he was a good decision maker. In cabinet meetings, he would often call him old man common sense. Oh, wow. So FDR believed he was just a man of the soil. In fact, that could not have been further from the truth. Yeah, Wallace well, was a F- huge flake. <laughs> FDR... Growing up in uh, in a Manor House on the Hudson probably doesn't have a good sense of who the right. he thinks, salty dogs are. He thinks anybody who can splice two kinds of corn is a is a man of the soil. Right. Uh, in fact, he was less corn than flake. I guess to coin a phrase, he was a, hmm. he was a seeker. He was interested. Uh, Henry Wallace was interested in astrology. Every new kind of fad. You know, we've talked about the fads of the Progressive Era from nutritional to spiritual, and often there was a lot of crossover. Um, Wallace loved them all. And in the early 30s, he met once with Nicholas Rarick and was just quite taken. Oh, I bet. By Rarick kind of magnetic appeal and utopian philosophies. It's like the key master meets the gatekeeper. He was 100% sold. And even though they never met again, he spent the mid-30s in avid correspondence with Nicholas Rarick, a man he often called the guru when hmm. he wrote to him. Hmm. So we've got a cabinet member with a guru. A cabinet member that's already old man uh, soil old, sample. Old, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> old man hot biscuit poop. Uh-huh. Uh, and his letters we have from this period are extremely strange and show the influence that Rarickian thought is having on him. He often refers to uh, the you know evil forces afoot in the universe, the dark ones, the vermin Whoa. that must be overcome by virtue of the light ones, the great ones. He's not talking about the Jews, is he? <laughs> no, he's borrowed Rarick's kind of Eastern mystical view that oh, light there, ones, dark ones. there are figures of light that we need to dispel the darkness of the world. Right. And his guru Rarick is obviously one of the good ones. But he, he refers to... Cordell Hall as the sour one. Huh. He refers to FDR himself as either the flaming one or the wavering one, depending on whether he likes FDR's latest policy shift. I love that everyone gets to be a the one. Yeah, he's he's really uh, internalized the language of Eastern mysticism and is interpreting, as he's sitting in cabinet meetings, is interpreting New Deal politics through this weird mystical lens. Well, if you were going to call me a the one, what would I be? 
Uh, you are the Aloha one. The Aloha one, yes. Or if you're if you're not particularly Aloha, I guess then you're the uh, what? The mm. the cranky one. Mm. Am I cranky? The Am coffee I really one? cranky. You're not a curmudgeon. No, no. I'm not cranky. You don't like cranky because it seems old. Meh. Yeah, but also cranky. It's just like a it's such a one note. I'm not cranky you're, about. I'm only cranky about things that that deserve to be cranky. About. Right, but it, to me, it kind of connotes the idea of a, a crank, like on your pet topics. Right, right. you're a crank. Am I though? You're, uh, this you're is the, making me cranky. I never should have asked. You're the model railroad one. <laughs> well, okay, well, let's well, bounce off of that. Well, what about me? In, uh, in your correspondence to your guru, how do you refer to me? Uh, <laughs> the uh, you know the. The medium one. <laughs> He's very medium. In uh, of the two of us, you're the medium one. The, the fact that that's true. The fact that Nicholas Rarick now has the ear of a highly placed member of the Roosevelt administration means that his political ideas can get some play. You know, in the past, he would send letters about getting the U.S. in on the Rarick Pact of Pax Cultura. And uh, the State Department would just be like, don't answer this guy. You know, no arts commission would answer his calls. But now Henry Wallace can go to Roosevelt and override whatever the sour one Secretary of State Hall wants to do. And suddenly... um, We have New Deal architecture everywhere. (laughs) Giant men holding up globes on their shoulders. Suddenly uh, Washington is hosting a conference where international diplomats are signing... Uh, signing us into Pax Cultura. Whoa. And, you know, the League of Nations, insofar as it still exists, is is debating his ideas. And, you know, he really has play on the international stage. And in fact, in the 30s, when uh, Henry Wallace wants to send a, uh, you know, America's in the grip of the Dust Bowl, and Wallace wants to send an agricultural field team to Central Asia, to Manchuria, or I guess that's not Central, but to... to to Manchuria to study drought-resistant grasses, mm-hmm. uh, Rarick manages to finagle his way onto the committee. Okay. So now we have Rarick and a couple botanists trekking across Central Asia, hoping to bring back word of drought-resistant grains and grasses. Rarick has done such a much better job at this than I did based on being, you know, aspiring to this at age 24. You never got a cabinet official. No, if you had just written to to Casper Weinberger or uh, Admiral Poindexter. So what is Rarick looking for on this grass uh, mission? Well, he is closer to his spiritual home of Siberia, where he plans to found a new uh, golden city. And in fact, he writes all the time. In his letters home to Wallace and others, his code word for <laughs> Siberia is Kansas. So he will say things like, I think all the time about Kansas. He's mm. obsessed with uh, with Siberia. Big Kansas. Yeah. that's what that's, The Russian <laughs> word for Siberia means big Kansas. And uh, But this does not go over well with the, you know, his spiritual mystical aims do not go over well with the actual botanists on the expedition who want to do real botany. Sure. Uh, but it's a dicey geopolitical situation. Manchuria at the time... The Japanese have invaded. Of course. So this is now Manjukuo, a Japanese puppet state. Right. They've installed Puyi, the you know the last emperor of the of the Manchu dynasty, on the throne of this puppet state, and the U.S. is carefully trying to stay neutral between China and Japan, but now they've got this Russian-born mystic traipsing all over, getting both the Chinese and the Japanese press 
mad at him. And the botanists. The botanists are furious because he won't do botany. Right. You know, he'll he'll send plants home, but they're only all he brings back are curative herbs. And when the botanists complain, he goes over their heads in the agriculture department and tells uh, Wallace that these guys are screwing up his expedition, and they all get busted down to the assistant secretary of subtropical horticulture. Wow. So busted he, botanists. So he ruins these guys' career. Oh, my goodness. Uh, just be- and, and then he decides he's going to move on to the Gobi Desert, and now he's suddenly got a troop of armed white Russian Cossack guards that he's traveling with. He is 100% who I dreamt I would be when I was 24. I also wanted white Russian co- uh, um, Cossack guards to follow me all all through Central Asia. Look, we all do in our 20s, but we outgrow that, John. It's like... I know, but I never we, did. We, th- we, we send our Ayn Rand books to Goodwill and <laughs> we give up on the dream of what? founding a city-state in, in uh, Tanatuva. Why doesn't a vulnerable world take my crackpot theories to heart? Um, he starts making overtures toward the USSR. As, as well, oh. uh, you know, an olive branch toward them. Sure. So basically, everything he's doing in the region is appalling and potentially destabilizing. And the State Department pulls the plug on. Tells him. Wallace what's really going on, and Henry Wallace becomes very disillusioned. Oh, so Wallace isn't. Once Wallace is actually shown I see. intelligence, he's not. Wallace hasn't become a complete nut. He still is. He still is susceptible to data. I guess he has compartmentalized his religious wackiness in a way that we would prefer that a lot of politicians do. Boy, hallelujah! And uh, once he's once he's confront, you know, a lot of politicians once they're confronted with the fact that the end of their policy might be war in the middle east a lot of them would think great yeah as is promised in the books of ezekiel and revelation right uh but wallace to his credit thinks oh i had this guy all wrong well it It turns out he's a nut job and is he doing this for political reasons does he realize he's a political liability or is he is wallace like actually trying to make a better world there is a lot of evidence that wallace is worried about his own career yeah because he knows that there is now a decade of letters in which he calls this destabilizing nut job bolshevik uh yeah possible anti-botanist uh he calls him a guru and so he tries to get out of the Rarick Pact. Once that doesn't work, he, he sees if the Rarick Pact can be renamed, something that does not have Rarick's name in it. Um, but does, he ca- does he call it the uh, Soviet Non-Aggression Pact? Because that has a bad reputation, too. Well, the thing about this is, uh, you know, as the 30s turn into the 40s and the Soviets become our allies against the Nazis, Wallace still uh, has a, a very chipper and bright-eyed view of the Bolshevik Revolution, um, which makes him, and he's not alone in FDR's cabinet, right? In, right. in being hopeful about U.S.-Soviet relations, that be- only became a problem in 1949, right? As we've mentioned on the show before, it was not odd to have highly placed government officials in the 1940s saying starry-eyed things about the Russians. In the case of Wallace, though, Wallace probably set a new record. In <laughs> 1944, he was actually given a tour of Stalin's Siberian labor camps. By the head of the NKVD. Uh, during the war. During so the war. He's flown over in some Pan Am Clipper 
flight from around the other side. And writes a glowing view, uh, article for National Geographic about these amazing volunteer camps that our friend Stalin has set up. <laughs> uh, you know, the volunteers are just, it just reminds me of, it's, he says it's like the Hudson Bay Company meets the Tennessee Valley Authority. Sure. They, they've applied the, they've combined the pioneer spirit with, you know, good old fashioned uh, uh, can do efficiencies of, of progressivism. The, the Gulag Summer Campelago. <laughs> he is totally taken in by whatever this Potemkin village that the NKVD has built for him. Oh, sure. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, the Jews are all happy here. Well, that's what he says. These are all volunteers here. Of course. We, we have a town meeting every week where we decide on how the community is going to, and he compares it to. to um, Colonial New England. And this is not Rurik doing this. This is Wallace. This is Wallace. And, and maybe, future presidential candidate. And, and maybe colored by the the, the the hopeful view of Siberia that he imbibed in the 30s from his relationship with his guru. Right. And the one world government. Maybe they just, uh, everybody in the Potemkin village had finger paints or something. He talks glowingly about how the camp commandant loves arts and music and and uh, and plays chamber music uh, every Saturday night. This is wow. a national. This is a cabinet member in in National Geographic, and not just a cabinet member anymore. Because by nineteen forty, by the forties, he is uh, FDR's vice president, and this hung by a thread in the nineteen forty campaign, where he has replaced John Nance Gardner on the ticket. In the middle of the campaign, FDR found out about the guru letters. Uh, Secretary of Commerce brings them to FDR, and Roosevelt pages through them. So this isn't a media scandal yet. Not yet. It's internal, but his face just falls because he has just chosen this guy to be his running mate, and someone's going to get a hold of this stuff. So FDR ponders dropping him from the ticket because he's found out that his running mate— has been calling this nut job uh, his guru and uh, and worrying about the dark ones from the Eldritch. Uh, what you know, he's worrying about Lovecraftian wow. uh, aliens, invaders, and ancient astronauts. This is wonderful. Isn't this the best? I don't think there's a the Chandra any, Levy scandal had very few ancient astronauts. <laughs> I don't think that there's a any American politician that could talk about having a guru up until very recently and not have it be a scandal, let alone. Ancient aliens. I mean, we're talking to future listeners where every politician has a has so many gurus. Hopefully, we are the gurus to some to the most successful future politicians. Uh, I would hope so. Although they're going to be for a while, they'll be older than us. So it's going to take a little while for us to be older than the political class. Well, not much longer. Well, I don't know. Biden's like. I mean, we got eighty year olds running for president now. So. Oh, I know, but there are all kinds of forty five year old governors. That's true. And, and senators and mayors. If only Mayor Pete had won the nomination, you and I could have been his... his the, the, uh, be our first older-than-us president. <laughs> or younger-than-us. I'm sorry. Our first younger-than-us president. It's never going to happen. I'm, gonna, I'm convinced that the world will end without a Gen X or Evinghaver ever having been <laughs> president. So um, FDR decides not to drop him from the t- ticket because he's worried that that will be an even greater scandal. But the Republicans find out. Oh, wow. The Republicans get their hand on the guru letters. And there's a lot of discussion within the National Committee as to whether they should make this part of the election. Can you imagine discussing it as though it wouldn't be the first thought in your mind? Can you imagine a time when either political party would not immediately, but but particularly the Republicans, would... Would, would be slobbering all over the guru letters. Right, they would, that they hesitate because it's beneath their dignity? Today, this would be on Hannity three hours later. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of discussion. And it's not just a dignity issue, although there is some of that still. 
uh, in partisan politics of the time. There's also the fact that their candidate, Wendell Wilkie, is not scandal-proof. Right. He has been having a—you say right as if you know about Wendell oh, Wilkie's love life. Well, Wendell Wilkie. God. I'm going to tell you what Wendell Wilkie gets up to in the sack, and you are going to be appalled. <laughs> I guess he's been having a, a long-standing affair with a very prominent American literary editor and arts figure, Irita Van Doren. Mm. And it's an open secret— and the Wilkie campaign is terrified that this will come out. So a deal is struck. The Republicans will not mention the guru letters if the Democrats don't mention Wilkie's side dowager. How is this deal struck? Someone from the Republican National Committee goes across the goes across Pennsylvania Avenue to the Democratic National Committee headquarters and says, "Look, let's." Let's let, let's talk this out. You don't think this that would happen? Now he's being naive, Kay. <laughs> both political parties conspired to make their nominees look less like religious flakes and uh, philanderers. Philanderers, huh? Oh, and, respectively. And, and so everybody stuck to the to the deal. The deal held. You'd think the Republicans having much more to lose, right. like knowing that beating Roosevelt with Wendell Wilkie. Uh, is going to be tricky. You'd think they would have been more inclined to to press the button on the doomsday device, but they right. did not. Uh, with the result that Henry Wallace is a sitting vice president in 1940, and very eager to stay on the ticket in 1944, because obviously, I mean, nobody's saying FDR is going to die, but whoever is Roosevelt's vice president is the presumptive future of the party. Right, and Roosevelt must be must have been trying to get this guy as far away from him as he could the entire four years. Yes. Uh, in particular, the National Geographic article where he praises Stalin's labor camps, you know, he's, he seems too cozy to the Soviet Union. And there is a conservative element of the Democratic Party and of the Roosevelt administration that thinks this is a huge mistake, that we can't cozy up to Stalin just because he's marginally better than Hitler for the moment. Right. Uh, and they want him off the ticket and... When you think about it, he's a wartime vice president during our most fashionable war. And, and he's a corn geneticist. And nobody really ever talks about him. He didn't do anything of, of, of much substance during that period. And nobody can agree on a replacement. Uh, and that's the reason why a relative cipher like Harry Truman, you know. The haberdasher. A, yeah, a local, a local mid, a respected local Midwestern politician with almost no national record gets on the ticket because he's somebody that the conservative Democrats and the liberals can agree on, whereas Wallace is beyond the pale. Right. Uh, and as we all know, 82, maybe the futurelings don't know, futurelings, in a shocking twist, 82 days after Harry Truman is sworn in as vice president, President Roosevelt dies. That's less than three months. We came within 82 days of having a theosophist, ast ancient astronaut-believing weirdo as the president of the United States at the end of World War II with atomic weapons. Wow. We, we almost had a guy who both had a guru and the bomb. You're blowing my mind with this. And then he, then he had the, the uh, hubris to run as a third-party candidate. Yes. And by that time, the, at, at that point, the letters did come out. Uh, uh, a newspaper printed the guru letters. But at that time, he was already kind of such a fringe figure. Right that it didn't measurably hurt his campaign. But, uh, Nor help it. And by the, <laughs> right. But by that time, the year before, in 1947, uh, Nicholas Rarick had died in India. 
He had not come back to the United States in decades, possibly a result of the $48,000 the IRS said he owed in back taxes, and possibly a result of a $200,000 lawsuit that his former millionaire benefactor, this uh, Horch fellow, the guy who built the Dakota or whatever that weird building was. Sued him? Uh, yeah, because uh, he had also become disillusioned and wanted some of the, you know, some of the money he had paid Rarick back. Uh, so Rarick did not, so Rarick survived to see his acolyte come within 82 days of becoming president of the United States and leader of the free world. Holy cow. But he missed the, uh, he missed the quixotic third party presidential run. But today, uh, Rarick is still fondly remembered. There are, uh, you know, his museum is still on the Upper West Side and I've never been, but I can't wait for the, for travel to come back. Cause the next time I'm in Manhattan, I'm absolutely going to the Rarick Museum. Me too. There's another one in Moscow. Both of them have the uh, the three red symbol, the you know the, the his cultural red cross idea that never caught on. Still has a small number of of uh, disciples. I read a one journalist's account of uh, going to get tea at a tea house near the Rarick Museum in Moscow and having the server have the uh, the the Rarick symbol shaved into his head. So there are still he still has followers and acolytes. I assume more in Russia. He seems like a Rasputin-like figure that you. Not every not every crazy Russian with a beard is a Rasputin (laughs) figure. (laughs) But he just I don't know. He seems like uh, somebody to uh, renounce. But apparently, these. But but by the same token, he compared to to your average American kook these days, he seems really like a pretty together guy. I mean, if what you want is a utopia in big Kansas, and I assume right. many Russians would like to see a... Many Russian mosquitoes would be into... into. But many Russians would also like to see, you know, their their right. beautiful steps become the, sel- the center of the next era of human progress. That must really speak to a certain kind of nationalism. So I wonder if maybe there's a Putin era, huh. uh, you know, a renovation of uh, reinvention of Rarick. Uh, we haven't stopped trying to trying to um, repurpose Eastern mysticism as a sort of Western uh, like pseudo religion lifestyle accoutrement. Right. In 2013, uh, a Rarick painting sold for 7.8 million pounds at auction. That's a record for a Russian art auction. So he's still. Uh, He's, his art and his beliefs still have followers, even though uh, he is no longer a factor in U.S. presidential politics. Well, in that sense, he has he has fully culminated all of my youthful ambitions. Not only did he get to be like a crackpot in his own time, destroying botanists' careers and influencing political figures, but never fully debunked or denounced. He's like super primed to become a godhead 50 years from now. Maybe the omnibus like uh, biography of him will be the tipping point. I don't think it's too late for you, John. I think you can get some white Russian Cossacks on TaskRabbit. Yeah. And uh, a, mi- a, a millionaire benefactor. Uh, and uh, stake out some land in, in Tanatuva. Work think, on your th- no, it's going to be Alaska. Work on your throat singing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Our mosquitoes are better than theirs. Start some Alaskan throat singing, and you can be you could be uh, you can be the crackpot one. Mm, a man can dream. And that concludes the Guru Letters, entry five five seven dot pr zero five one three. 
certificate number 43738 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event, the unlikely event that I do not become a religious godhead in the future, and that social media still exists in your era, please go on social media and try to convince people to become acolytes of my quasi-religion. Imagine if your head was just floating everywhere like J.R. Bob Dobbs, mm. but you don't have a pipe. You're you're just uh, eating a piece of toast or something. Oh, Betty. Solviet. Please go to Ad Omnibus Project to see all of our episodes in uh, in chronological order. You can also go to at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick to see our of the moment thoughts um, ripped from the headlines. Also, my Instagram account sometimes has pictures of me in uh, in seductive poses. Generally. Can you imagine the boudoir photography of you once you become the once, wow. once your Alaskan city of tolling bells you takes up? You need a medium format camera. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com or go to the Futurelings Facebook page and start a thread about a thing, and almost certainly one of us will see it because the Futurelings are very, very, they are exhaustive in their research and promulgation of our ideas. Uh, also, the Futurelings are on Reddit and other places. They've infiltrated so many fora. Yeah, they're in the, the chat rooms on Fortnite. Uh, just look for Futurelings. I hope they're whispering in the ear of some minor cabinet official. Wherever acolytes are found. Uh, you can mail things to us directly, including any um, 19th century or early 20th century Russian neorealist art. Remember, I love Prince Valiant-looking Slavic art. John, less so. Ken wants a... But it would require that it come in a shipping crate because Ken wants it to be epically scaled to match sure. his giant home. <laughs> no, to match <laughs> this, the scope and scale of those great Russian sagas that we love. Uh, you can send that to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Although, sending uh, that, sending things to that address did not work for the lady that wanted to send me her grandfather's German books. Yeah, this is what I found in the mail today. Uh, I think Kathy sent you a bunch of... Uh, or were these her father's? Books her- with... I don't know. They all have swastikas. A lot of them have swastikas on them. Yeah. I mean, they're all related to Germany. I can't tell which ones are Nazi. I mean, the one that says UFOs, Nazi secret weapon, question mark, with a picture of Hitler on the front. This one might be Nazi related. (laughs) That does seem to be Nazi related. Some of them are actual books from Germany. Her, her, uh, all three volumes of Das Werden des Deutschen. Is that Voltus? You'd think it would be Volkus, like folks. The words of the Russian something or other. It's in a weird kind of gothic font. Oh, the best. I don't know what... The best mid-century German gothic font. And, like, no matter where I turn, there's a picture of Goethe. <laughs> Was it published by the Goethe Institute? You know, they have the they have the absolute best pastries in Vienna. The uh, 1925. So these... Um, oh, okay. These books, at least, are not... Explicitly not. Explicitly <laughs> National Socialist Propaganda. You know the reason... Why, so you said these got sent back, is that right? Yeah. So I think I know what happened. Yeah. So in our... In our mailbox, often there's like keys so that I can open a bigger mailbox and get the packages. But there's also these just yellow slips of paper with a date and magic marker. Right. 
And after not knowing what to do with those for a long time, I found out... You just threw them away? Well, I just left them in there. Oh. Because I was like, this must be something they're using to mark something, something. This must be some internal thing. Because nowhere on it does it say, here's what you do with this yellow piece of paper. I see. But it turns out they have a second system in addition to giving you keys... They'll if there's something really big, they'll just give you a slip of paper. There's a third system because the first system which is, is be, putting things putting in your things, mailbox, which is what I thought would happen when I got a PO box. Right. Uh, so it's not really. I don't understand fully why, but I feel bad for anything you got something sent back. How many how many times do you think packages got sent back over the course of your ownership of this box? It's just hundreds and hundreds of wow. times. I've seen so many wow. yellow slips of construction paper. All those cases of of Cincinnati chili that just lost like like tears and rain rain. like like cheese covered (laughs) tears and rain so i apologize to anyone whose book whose box got sent back well thank goodness she she persevered and sent this but she persisted and now you are a proud owner of nazis uh ufos or not or whatever it was called uh, well, if you would like to contribute to the production and uh, maintenance of this show in a way beyond or other than sending me your grandfather's books about Nazi UFOs, uh, consider contributing at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Your generous contributions uh, help us make the show and help us um, continue, help me continue to entice Ken to make the show because he could be out, I don't know what, leading an expedition, leading a botany expedition into into Middle Asia right now. We love our supporters, don't we? Yes, we do. And they help us a lot. And we also love them so much we give them bonus content in the form of... uh, Kisses. uh, Kisses. I will give you kisses. At the $100 level, John will give you a kiss on the forehead when the pandemic ends. Ken will not kiss you because he's happily married. You show me what color hanky, and I will tell you what I'm willing to do. You'll kiss them wherever that hanky indicates? It's an open (laughs) negotiation. Let's just say that. Um... Uh, you can donate at patreon.com slash omnibus project and, uh, and get this bonus material. Also, signed chick tracks and show notes and uh, kisses, hankies, the whole nine. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, before the King of Shambhala returned to the great city of Zvenigorod, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that a civilization-ending catastrophe will never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. But if providence allows, if the giant future John Roderick Godhead allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.